Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Kimberly, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Okay, so the title of the book is The Invincible Family. I'm actually holding a copy. I guess they can't see it, but I'm holding a copy right here. While the global campaign to crush motherhood and fatherhood can't win. Okay, why the book? Why now? Well, a couple of reasons why. A few years back, I ran into some information online that was really surprising to me um, that I started to pursue. So what I what I found was uh, a document published by International Planned Parenthood Federation, and it was all about sexual rights for children. And I, I didn't really know that was a thing in the mainstream, and uh, but it is. And so I got looking into that. That was as a mom of, of five kids. That's troubling to me that there would be a campaign to sexualize children and teach them all about their so-called sexual rights. And so um, that kind of started me down a path that led to the United Nations and helped me to see the global war on the family. That's that's happening. So that's um, I didn't ever, I didn't set out to write a book at that point, but after I had. Um, been exploring this issue for about 10 years and speaking about it, I decided the best way to get the word out to, to more people would be through the book. Okay. So you, you tied in a few large organizations there. So Planned Parenthood, um, United Nations, is, is are these groups connected or are they just saying the same thing? Or is there kind of a common thread between them? Yeah, that's what I came to understand is that, um, so when I went to the United Nations for the first couple of times in the, the Commission on the Status of Women, which is held in New York every spring, um, I, I went to several events there. And what I began to realize is that <clears throat> there are many players that work together and International Planned Parenthood Federation is a major player at the United Nations, specifically at the Commission on the Status of Women, and they promote what they call women's sexual rights, as well as sexual rights for children. And they're not very shy about that. Sometimes they use different words, but the the thing is, and the, the fact that the thing that I've seen with my own eyes is that these groups work in tandem, and um, there, there there are a lot of other subgroups that that uh, have bought into this. Uh, sort of ideology about children's sexual rights, and then and then the monies of the United Nations, which most nations of the world pay pay into the United Nations system. Then those some of those monies are used to promote, um, you know, various programs across the globe, including sexual rights uh, programming for children. Hmm. One of the things we've talked about on the show before is the issue of consent, especially talking about um, you know, around sexual or sexual rights. I think when, when you talk, mm -hmm. when we get to this space, it, it's quite interesting to me because we say that, you know, a 15 year old doesn't have the ability to consent to uh, whether or not they should buy alcohol um, or whether or not they should drive in most States. And so how do you think about who has rights and how do you unpack that? Because at the core, the, a, lot, a lot of these issues, we talk about the family, um, ultimately come to this, who can do what and who has rights where. So how do you mm -hmm. frame that? Right. So most things at the United Nations and global level are, are framed in the language of rights, even human rights. And of course, we all fundamentally, to some degree, degree in, agree with the concept of human rights for sure. But then who, who gets to define what exactly that is? And so there's kind of a huge battle going along going on globally 
um, trying to brand certain things as human rights. Because once you do that, and once you're legitimized in you know, global documents, then your cause um, has more thrust going, going forward. Now, with the issue of consent, um, there's sexual consent, there's medical consent, there's all different kinds of, of consent. And traditionally, what we have, as a society have decided and supported is the narrative that parents help their children know what is best for them in most cases. And, and in most scenarios, this works the best. Now, not all parents are fantastic, but in all in most cases, parents are the ones that love their children most and are going to advocate most for their well-being, whatever that might be. And so parents, you know, I believe God created the family structure with parents who are older and more, you know, experience and hopefully have more wisdom and then they can guide their children going going forward um but there's and we've seen it on on several fronts lately the wanting to lower the age of consent for voting we've seen that and this is all part of the uh, movement to kind of separate children from their parents in a sense and um so in fact there's a there's a document called the convention on the rights of the child um i have an article coming out on this just this week but what that is so children do have rights and when the, you know just like other people have rights however if you're honoring family stru structure then family then parents opinions and guidance of their child remains important but if you don't value that kind of family structure then um you can basically do away with the consent of parents and just go straight to the child and so what the convention on the rights of the child does is tries to grant all kinds of what most people would consider egregious uh freedoms to children that are actually not in in their best interest so that's one uh, one aspect of consent another aspect of consent um is in sexuality education programs and the way that that's taught and maybe we can get into that larger picture in, in just a minute but you asked about consent so um many of these comprehensive sexuality education programs that are pushed from the global level um address consent and most people would think that sounds like a good idea most parents would probably say great they're going to teach my children especially my daughters how to you know refuse sexual advances that are are unwanted but what I've found in many of these programs is that positive consent is is what is mainly taught, meaning to teaching children how to negotiate sexual relationships, how to say yes to sex. I mean, yes, there is there's a token mention of, of saying no and making that clear. But but uh, there's all kinds of examples and scenarios given to children of, of, of young people negotiating sexual experiences and teaching them how to do that. Yeah, it, it's. It's been something that I've been interested in exploring because generally I would agree that the parents would know best. So you have that. Um, and then we've seen over the past decade, maybe longer, the erosion of the child's um, responsibility to report to the parent of what's going on, you know, whether it be a, a doctor or whomever. And there is sometimes where you want a protective element to protect the child from abuse or, or whatever. But it's moved from that to kind of more broad things, so whether it be a, a vaccine or whether it be um, some type of drug you want to take or whatever. And so you've kind of moved the age of consent. Uh, you've, you've moved the the consent um, to, to the minor level. Um, but then 
we still have these other things which we all can look at and say, we don't want a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old driving a car. No one wants that. <laughs> so to me, that's where it's been kind of interesting is that that we're, we're, we're not really talking as a society about what consent means, when can you consent, what can you consent to, um, who can consent for who, um, and then why, I mean, I'm not saying that every minor, um, everyone under 18 should be um, not be able to consent to anything, of course, but we don't really have these issues. And so you can kind of see it creeping in over here and going, hmm, okay, well, how can they do this and not that? And that's a discussion that that really just doesn't happen. And it, it's quite frustrating to me because on the other end of the spectrum in Louisiana, uh, two or three years ago, they age, they, they, they uh, increased the smoking age from 18 to 21. It's like, well, that's not an issue of consent because you're saying that 18-year-olds can go die in war. So you don't care about them consenting. It's, it's some other issue that you're making. And so you can see this coming from a lot of different areas where society is trying to put laws or remove laws, but we're really not interested in the larger the larger discussion, which is who can consent for what and when can they consent. Um, and to me, that's a very troubling trend. Right. And um, like we've mentioned, at, at, core, at the core of this is who is responsible for children and its parents. And while there can be community support for parents, parents are and should remain the main uh, helpers of their own children, the main people who are legally and morally responsible for them. And, and unfortunately, we, we see a trend, it, it, we've seen for many years a trend away from this, con parents even conceding in a sense, more and more of our responsibility for our children to other other sources, um, schools, for example, that's become a, a very common thing. We just sort of, many parents think, oh, my my kid will be taught everything they need to know at school. And we're, we're beginning to see how, how unwise that has been to um, kind of usher our children into the hands of others. Because whoever those others are, there, there may be a noble teacher, there may be a great coach, you know, there's other people that can influence our children for good. But when there's other parties and specifically state parties and other actors, especially sexual rights activists who are trying to take responsibility for teaching our children, we must draw the line. So what is your concern today? And then what is your concern 10 years from now if this trend continues? My concern now is that uh, children are being pitted against their parents. And one one asset facet of this that contributes, I, we're all aware, is you know phone use. When we give children phones, it gives a lot of people access to our children, and it gives our children access to all kinds of information. And um, many times, that information is not conducive to maintaining strong family relationships. Often, they uh, you know there's various influencers that tell children that they're their parents are wrong or, you know, that they can have, uh, that if their parents don't agree, then, you know, they should seek elsewhere for support. And so I think at this point, I'm very concerned that children's hearts are being turned away from their parents. And then down the road, what that portends is, um, how will the rising generation feel about being parents themselves? How will they feel about the family? Will they value marriage? Will they value lifelong commitment? Will they value you teaching their own children or will they see that see it as just perfectly fine if the state is mostly in charge of educating 
our children. And so as we we look forward to passing the baton, as it were, on to the next generation of parenting, um, I, I have huge concerns about that. There's good things also, but but there's a major reason for concern. Yeah, I think one of the criticisms I have of the conservative movement in general is they will say, hey, you know, pornography is wrong. We want to we want to keep it away from children. Oh, by the way, all of our kids are on Instagram, which is quite obviously a, a, a anyone who's reasonable can look at Instagram for five minutes ago. It's not the best spot for young boys or young girls to be. What's being mm-hmm. said, even if they're not talking about parental relationships, what's being pushed down their throat um, is is something mm-hmm. that's not healthy for for young people to be engaged in. And so, I, I think that as you talk to these issues, you say, well, their social media and the messages that they're being told that's 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 one thing, but also just what they're seeing and how that could impact them. So um, do you agree with that assessment? Yes. And of course, TikTok is a big offender as, as well. So there's so many influences. And what the, what the, the thing is, there's so many forces trying to influence our children, but we need to remain the, the first and the strongest influences of, of our children. So that's easy to say, but harder to do. But that is, in fact, is how we win this war. Uh, and we're fighting for the, basically the souls of our children and and we win it through the family we win it through maintaining purposefully and intentionally relationships with our children limiting in some cases what what they have access to but not just limiting fostering strong relationships with our children which takes time it takes a lot of energy it, it takes our best efforts uh, of both mothers and fathers but the fact is we can do it God has put mothers and fathers in the position of what I believe is the greatest power because he knows they'll wield that power best and that they'll their children will benefit from their influence. And so we can't just say, oh, yeah, they're just a teenager. That's just how it is when teenagers uh, at that age, you know, they rebel against their parents. There is some element of rebellion, but we can maintain and we need to try our very hardest to maintain um, warm and loving and open relationships for, ch- for our children, because if we if we're not doing that, they will find relationships elsewhere. But so would you generally agree, though, that that parents should try to keep their kids off of Instagram and TikTok and stuff like that? Certainly. Uh, in my, my family, we I, I have four college age girls and we didn't give them phones until they were 16, which which was seemed very different than almost everyone around us. And we're in a very conservative area. And, you know, my my kids were some of the last holdouts that didn't have a phone, but I'm so grateful we did that. And, and even then we didn't avoid all the problems that phone use brought after that point. And so um, we need to, as parents, uh, look at what we really want for our children and family. And, and if and if we're providing and paying for things that are fracturing our children from us, we need to think again. Yeah. Well, I do think there's a larger, larger question about schooling and society and <laughs> And kind of that mentality. But one of the things that you mm-hmm. do see that is troubling um, with this this kind of attack is you, you might have the the school angle or what's being taught when the kids are out of the home. But going back to the social media example, you also have the ability for adults to interact with underage children in a in a provocative sexual manner, which is to say, yes, you look attractive mm-hmm. or hot or whatever the word is uh, to to mm-hmm. to. You know, slide into the DMs, if you will. Um, and so you might have a 25, 28, 29, 30-year-old person interacting with a 14, 15, 16-year-old person because that kind of barrier that would normally be there in society, which is they're not going to run the same mm-hmm. circles, they're not going to hang on the same people, that's kind of built in. You've kind of removed that as well. Um, we used to have a term for that called pedophilia. 
especially mm-hmm. when you get younger. Um, are we concerned that the that this kind of removing that barrier is going to lead to more of these relationships to where, again, you have the consent question coming back up is, which is kind of 15 year old mm-hmm. girl or boy consent to a relationship with a 30, 35 year old person. Are you seeing a trend or concerned about that trend? Yes, I'm concerned. I, I'm concerned on one hand and I have cause to hope on the other. And I'll, I'll tell you why for both of those things. Um, what I see globally is from the global level in children's uh, programming, particularly sexual programming. If you look at it, objectively it is pedophilic in nature because it teaches first of all children to consent to sexual relationships it tells them that they have a right to sexual pleasure that it's a human right separate from childbearing or marriage or commitment or anything that they simply have a right to engage in sex well what what does that make them vulnerable to you know it makes them severely vulnerable to adults and others who would want to capitalize upon that and say yeah you do and let me help you with that so there is a there there is a, a noble children's rights movement but it's been largely corrupted at the highest levels and coming on down through society um by the children's sexual rights movement which is which is very pedophilic in nature and so globally this trend has been growing for many decades um however my, i have cause to hope because you know recent incidents that we've seen like the you know the balenciaga scandal with the children posing with the sexualized uh, teddy bears and so forth um was abhorrent to most people there was a huge outcry against seeing children posed in in sexual situations or with sexual innuendo. A lot of people found that uh, extremely troubling and totally unacceptable. So while I think that the global uh, movement is toward lowering age of consent, which is friendly to the pedophilic movement, I think the culture at large, especially parents, are certainly not okay with that. So what's different about the pressures? Okay, we have the internet, obviously. But what's different just from a societal standpoint from the 60s, uh, the kind of the the age of love versus what we're seeing today, do you think? Um, well, one thing that comes to mind, there are many things, but one thing that comes to mind is the the back then it was more free love um, than that narrative. Um, these days it's much more violent and selfish. Uh, the material that our children are being exposed to, the violence in not just pornography, but just in uh, song lyrics and so forth. I was talking to a young woman not long ago, and she was saying, well, every, ever, you know, she was saying everyone knows that, basically, everyone knows that sex is, is rough. And I'm like, really? How does everyone know that? And she says, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's just everywhere in music, on YouTube and everything, you know, so our children, children are being raised to people who are just seeking sexual pleasure which is not what it's intended to be at all it's intended to be it's a god-given gift to for couples to first of all create life and then keep families together and so but that narrative is almost nowhere evident to our children so what does that mean it means we have to make it evident to our children in our homes and and through our uh worship and just through the people that that our circle of friends that we invite into our homes and 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 do things with and uh we need to be intentional about that and not just think you know oh our our kids will make it through okay uh they might not you've mentioned god a few times what would you say to people who aren't religious how would you know because they would say well you know Mm -hmm. you're 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 making some kind of religious argument but i'm not i'm not Mm -hmm. not a religious person 
Right. Well, actually, my book, The Invincible Family, is not based on on any religious uh, principles because I think it, it's it's uh, needed and valuable to make these arguments from a non-religious standpoint, which is what I do for the bulk of the book. And um, it, that basically that idea hinges upon the fact that families exist. inherently, whether you believe God, the system of the universe in some way created that, either way, it exists, right? And um, so either way, we have to kind of admit that there must be purpose to it, even if there isn't a God in charge. For some reason, things have developed this way, so that a man, it takes a woman and a man, and together, they are the ones that create human life, and that that's, that's we don't believe in God. Most believe that human life matters the data from the past many decades it tells us that children generally do best not always but generally predominantly do best in being raised by their own um, to kind of reckon with and decide what they what they believe on that point and then you know pass that on to the next generation I'm sorry, I can't hear you now. Yeah, I was muted. Sorry. Um, okay. What's been the maybe the best critique of the book that you've gotten? You go, you know, I wish I would have fleshed this out a little bit more. I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Yeah. What's been maybe the best critique of the book that you've gotten where you go, you know, I didn't really think about teasing this out enough or I kind of skipped over this and I should have went back and filled that in a little bit better. Okay. So maybe uh, changes that I would make to the book? Yeah. Um, I know that some, a couple of people I've talked to who are adoptive parents have been a little bit uncomfortable with my, um, discussion of the biologic, the importance of biological parents. And in fact, in my original draft, I addressed adoption more, but my editors kind of took a lot of that out. I insisted that we leave some of that discussion in. And, uh, so briefly I will say, I think that, um, biological relationships are deeply important. Um, however, when those relation, when parents are not able to care for their children for whatever reason, obviously adoption is a beautiful solution to that problem because we we support adoption because we're a society believes that that believes that children should be taken care of, and that is the best way that we have found as a society to care for children, not in a group setting but in a family setting. And so, whenever we can offer children a, a family setting for their young youngest years and on forward we're we're setting up the best possible situation for children so there have been a, a couple of people who said i was too strong on on the biological connection but i but i do that purposely because i think it matters um but that doesn't mean that uh, god can't take a hand and plan b can also be a beautiful option what would you say to the adoption couples that are um like a homosexual couple you know two males or two females how, how does that fit into your paradigm here mm -hmm. Right. I have a chapter on that in the book. Um, but just briefly, we need to ask the question, both as individuals and as a culture, do mothers matter to their children? And if they do, if they matter past birth, then we should be structuring our policy in order to support that narrative so that children, in fact, are with their mothers. And, and in tandem with that, do fathers matter 
to their children because in a same sex uh, situation, either a father or a mother is missing. Is that, does that matter? We have to answer that question for ourselves. And if it matters, how does it matter? And um, are there Bennett, are there things that males bring to the table that females don't? Are there things that females bring to the table that males do not? You know, are they complementary? And my answer, of course, is yes. And the person that is affected by the most of family structure is the child. So if we're looking at what's truly best for children, we have to ask the question and answer it. Are mothers important to their own babies? Or can we just sell them off to people? Can we just have sperm donation or egg donation? And can we involve money in that transaction and not have it matter? So what are some practical, we talked about maybe um, bonding as a family unit or a, you know, maybe guarding the age of a cell phone, but give us more practical tips that you would say for families to strengthen the bond A with their children, within B, um, how to protect their children as they leave the home to go to school or, or whatever it might be doing. They, may, they might be mm -hmm. doing. Uh, yeah. So there's a, there's whole two pages at the end of the book, the invincible family of what you can do, but I'll mention a couple of specific things. First and foremost, um, we need to actively teach our children what we believe about marriage, sex, gender, and the family. Uh, not just once, like on an ongoing basis, we need to be talking about these issues, we need, need to take advantage of all the opportunities in our culture that gives us to discuss these things and to do it and to listen when our children have questions or maybe they disagree and to talk through those things. And, and even from the earliest ages, supporting, speaking to our children supportively about the roles of mothers and the importance of moms, the importance of dads. And like, I have a little guy and we talked to him about how it's so great because he's he can grow up to be a dad you know? And so he looks forward to that even, even now. And um, my, my daughters are older now, but when they were little, of course, I taught them to value motherhood. And isn't it great that your body has the capacity to be a mother? And so we, we talk about those things from the earliest stages and we don't stop talking about them. Um, on a slightly different, this is very practical, but I highly recommend reading as a family. Of course, we all like to read to our kids when they're little books, which is extremely important, but I've seen benefits and I've seen benefits in many different families of reading together as a family. And we've fallen out of that because we just watch devices or TV or whatever. But the thing is when you as a family choose a book you're going to read together and spend the time to read it, there's something magical that happens. And a lot of people, families, when they start to do this, they start with an audio book. Maybe you put everyone in the car on a family trip and you put in a book and that's a good way to kind of ease into this. Maybe talk to your kids about why you want to, read a book together, help them choose the book. And that might seem simplistic, but the thing is, when you read together compelling stories that teach the principles, e either uh, nonfiction or, or even just fiction books, when you ex experience stories together as a family that teach the lessons and um, highlight the kind of characters, both good and bad, that you want to talk about in your family and highlight the principles that you believe in, there is power in that. And children are moved we are all moved by stories more than almost anything else and so if we're, we're careful in our consumption of media and um actually to engage our children in the stories that will be the best for them that is powerful 
example. I, I think one thing that we need to do, two things, of the history of socialism and communism, um, expose our children to that in age-appropriate ways, and then study the history of freedom in our country and individual rights. And um, so that our children, most children are not hearing that at school. So if we want them to hear it at all, they need to hear it from us. Right. Okay. All right. We are going to link to, of course, the book and your website, which is invinciblefamily.com. Anywhere else you want us to send people to? That is perfect. Invinciblefamily.com. My book's also most available on, on Amazon, and I, I hope it's helpful to, to families. Okay. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at War 